1: Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's only one McD crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
0: of a detour
1: Welcome to the Peter King podcast boy there's a lot to wrap up this week In the National Football League, we're going to touch mainly on the Monday night game, which was one of the most scintillating football games for a variety of reasons that I've seen in a long time. We're going to dig into one specific part of that with Eric Eager, Senior Data Scientist for the Football Analytics Group Pro Football Focus. Uh, We'll also have an extended conversation with Mike Tannenbaum, uh, the former NFL general manager, and who knows? He may end up being a general manager again down the line. Uh, we're going to talk to him about the quarterback class of 2020 and, and about quite a few things, but a lot about the quarterback class of 2020. And I, Tannenbaum has got a very interesting view into this quarterback class, and I think it's going to be uh, a much ballyhooed, much discussed quarterback class uh, over the next four or six months. Uh, we'll talk about other things with Tannenbaum as well. Um, but I I, I I, found myself on Monday night watching this game, and, and, and there are some Monday night games where if it's not competitive at halftime, I'm in bed because my Sunday night is basically hell on wheels. I stay up so late. But I found myself watching this game with a minute 50 to go and asking mice in overtime, uh, the 49ers taking the ball first and 10 at their own 20 in a 24-24 game with Seattle having no timeouts left. And for just a fleeting second, I said, does it make any sense to kneel down three times and get away, get out with a tie? Just fleetingly, and I said, "No, no, there's no way they could do that. Absolutely no way. You got to try to win, and it's not just you got to try to win. But there's so many ramifications if you try to do this, uh, and and one of the ramifications is your players are looking at you cross-eyed. Like, what are you talking about? We're undefeated. We're eight and zero. We're a really good team, and you're sort of uh, waving the white flag." to the team that's chasing us in the standings. So I understand why they didn't do it. I'll get into this with Eric eager, but it is so interesting what did happen in this game and why with absolutely 2020 hindsight it might have made sense for the San Francisco 49ers uh, to kneel three times uh, and clearly in the long view, it would have hurt Shanahan in the short view with this team. But in the long view, it really probably would have given the uh, San Francisco 49ers their best shot uh, to get the uh, get home field advantage in the NFC. And so we'll discuss that a bit with Eric Eager. But the last thing I would say about this just in general is one of the things I really like about football, like about sports, but about football is that there are so many times in the course of a game where something very, very strange can happen, just like that. And you think for a split second, should we do this? Should we do that? And then you understand that these coaches have to make these decisions in real time without the benefit of sitting there for a half hour and talking to your closest advisors. So would it be better to take the guaranteed tie where we would still be ahead of every team in the NFC by at least two In the loss column, we'd have no losses, and everybody else in the NFC, the other contenders, have at least two. You don't have time to do that, and you probably wouldn't do it anyway. But it's just one of the reasons why, in my opinion, I don't know who coined this, football's the ultimate reality show, and that was an incredible reality show on Monday night. So we're going to get to our guests now. First, the senior data scientist, uh, for Pro Football Focus, Eric Eager. And we're going to get into the whys and wherefores of the end game in San Francisco, Seattle. You know, happy to be joined on the podcast this week by Eric Eager, a senior data scientist with uh, PFF. Uh, you may know him as Pro Football Focus. Uh, and the reason why I wanted to have Eric on the show this week is that... After the game on Monday night, the incredibly interesting, not the most well-played football game of all time, but an incredibly interesting game, I started hearing from people on social media, and I had thought of this just fleetingly during the game, uh, late in overtime, when the San Francisco 49ers took the ball in a tie game at their own 20-yard line with one fifty to go. Seattle had no timeouts left. San Francisco had one timeout left. Theoretically, if the 49ers had chosen to do so, Jimmy Garoppolo, the quarterback, could have kneeled three times and ended the game. And that would have left the San Francisco 49ers with a record of 8-0-1. It would have left them two games ahead of their three biggest competitors in the NFC for both home field advantage and, in one case, for the NFC West Championship. That would have left the Seattle Seahawks 7-2-1, and and that would have also left, uh, not depending on this game, but Green Bay would have been 8-2. New Orleans would have been 7-2. So San Francisco, with seven games left, would have been two games ahead in the loss column in the NFC playoff race. As it is, they lost the game. They ended, they threw the ball three times, left Russell Wilson enough time. And Russell Wilson came down, the the Seattle Seahawks kicked the winning field goal. And what is so interesting about this is that it flies in the face of anything you would ever think that a coach would do or try to do. And I'm absolutely sure that Kyle Shanahan would never do this, nor would any coach. But I guess my question is, would playing for the tie have been a smarter move, Eric Eager, than trying to win a game when your quarterback is cold as ice and you'd be handing the ball, if you throw it three times incomplete, and you'd be handing the ball to Russell Wilson, with about a minute 25 or minute 30 to go, even though with no timeouts left, the greatest in the game right now at the end of game comeback. So tell me what you think now that you're thinking of it. And I guess, were you thinking of it at all during the overtime period?
0: Well, at the time, I certainly was, I, I it came through my mind that, you know, San Francisco is was flirting with not taking any time off of the clock. and And in fact, when Seattle punted on fourth and two from their own forty-five, that you know Frank Reich against Houston game came to my mind. It very much felt to me like Seattle was playing the game for the tie. You know, with one fifty left, didn't make a whole lot of sense that Seattle was going to get the ball left back. And so uh, I thought that you know Seattle, when they punted away, were basically saying, okay, the best case scenario here is a tie. Um, and I think you know the math bears it out. Like Jimmy Garoppolo was you know very poor yesterday he sort of alternated between missing throws and then his receiver dropping passes. Um, But, you know, so it was kind of like a precarious position. Also Jadavian Clowney was having the game of his life, you know, forcing fumbles and things like that. So there was a big risk associated with dropping back three times, but at the same time, like, even if conservatively speaking, you give Jimmy Garoppolo basically a 50% chance to complete all those passes, the probability that all three of them would fall incomplete um, and let's assume that completed passes stay in bounds, um, there's about a 12% chance of that happening in terms of, you know, what just, you know, a, a 12% and
1: so, chance of all three balls being incomplete.
0: If you assume a 50%, so if you assume basically the worst out of Garoppolo, which you kind of saw last night, which is a 50, 50 chance of completing any one of his passes, um, it's a 12 and a half percent chance that they all fall incomplete. And so, Okay. Like, there, there, there's not a lot of risk to throwing it three times if, you know, uh, all of them being incomplete. But that's it. that ended up being what happened. Um, and so, you know, part of, me, part of me thinks, okay, well, why didn't you just run the football once? But, you know, as we talked about, there's sort, of, uh, there's sort of this other thing where, you know, you basically have to explain this whole thing to your fans. And I don't see the, the fans seeing much of a distinction between taking a knee three times and playing for the tie and sort of slow playing the drive and and not ending up with any time or, or field goal opportunity at the end as well. So uh, it's a very interesting question we saw before the game, there was about a 30% leverage difference. So the the fortunes of the NFC West change about 30% in Seattle's favor with a win. And, you know, and so that's, that's substantial. And in a, in a week where new Orleans loses, um, you know, and, and you could base and the LA Rams lose. You could basically hold serve with a Seattle team that in many ways outplayed you. That, that does have some upside. So it was an interesting question to bring up.
1: What's interesting now that you look at it, Eric, is that the Seattle Seahawks are eight and two and the 49ers are eight and one. So the Seattle Seahawks are a half game out of first place. And they also have the tiebreaker advantage as of today, which is somewhat a moot point because they'll meet in week 17. So that could fall by the wayside as well. But but they're separated now by a half a game. And if the 49ers played for the tie, they would have been separated by two games in the loss column and a game and a half in the standings. It's It's a... It's a phenomenal question to ask, but I also think that there are problems if you ended up doing that. The first of which is, what do you think your team is going to say, and what do you think the guys on your your team are going to think if you're tied with your arch rivals with a minute 50 to go? And you decide that you are going to take the tie and kneel three times. Your ethos and what people would think of you both inside and outside the building would be in tatters.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's the same thing with, um, you know, we've seen teams give, you know, basically tell their defense to allow the other team to score. Right. And that probably happens less often in late game situations because of what you just said, which is, Okay, this is a team sport, but what we're basically telling our defense right now is we don't trust you to get a stop in the next 3 downs. So we want to give the ball back to the other half of the team uh and win, right? And and there, it is, there's the psychology associated with it. And and you know, football is a very difficult I think game. it is These more guys... of
1: a Eric Eric, I think it's more of an indictment of what you would think of the offense. Honestly, because well, in, the offense yep. has probably 50 yards to go to get in decent field goal range. And you really don't trust Jimmy Garoppolo after watching him for four and a half quarters uh, to get 50 yards on this night.
0: Yeah. And football is a difficult game because, you know, when you talk about preparing for a game, these are situations that I think the really smart teams, so the, the New England's of the world, the Baltimore's of the world, they're going over those scenarios and saying, you know hey offense if we get in this position this is exactly why we're doing what we're doing it doesn't mean we think you suck or you know or you're not we don't trust you it's that we're trying to put you in the best position to win a Super Bowl and I know like as a you know as a former player and you know players don't think that way and and it's and it's important you know it's an educational aspect you know when Frank Reich went for the fourth down against Houston he's telling his team like look we want we don't we don't think that a tie is worth much to us in a division where, and it ended up being the difference between them winning the AFC South last year and not winning. But, you know, when you have like a culture like that, and I just don't think enough teams are sort of talking through that kind of stuff. And hence, you know, you get to where, what you're talking about, which is the messages you're sending to your team mid game. And and I agree. I think if you just kneel the ball down there, what you're saying is, look, we, we pay, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo, a ton of money, and we don't even trust him in a situation like that, even though if you, if you peel back a little bit and think, okay, well, they had five drops yesterday. They had five sacks. They had two forced fumbles on those sacks, one including a touchdown. They had, their center was out for the game. Uh, their best player, the tight end George Kittle, was out, and then Emmanuel Sanders. So there were a bunch of reasons why you wouldn't trust an offense like that. And unfortunately, like th- those things don't come into your mind when you're in a situation uh, like the Niners were uh, last night.
1: Would you have any idea what the, even estimate the odds of what the odds would be or what the percentages would be of the San Francisco 49ers with a minute 50 to go at their own 20, uh, gaining 50 yards to get in field goal range with one timeout left in overtime?
0: Yeah, I mean in a situation like that it's tough because you have to adjust for, you know, all the players being out. But basically, you know, our estimate would be something like, you know, be, uh, kind of a, a 33% to 40% chance uh, of them getting into at least field goal range and then again the worst case scenario is a tie, um, you know, and then, you know, another 20, you know, to, to 30% of them, you know, basically getting basically running the clock out slash hunting but giving Seattle almost no time um you know to do what they did and then the remainder uh you know as a, again a broad estimate of being what you know giving Seattle opportunity but again the probability that Seattle get you know uh you know Seattle basically had the perfect thing happen but there's a bunch of scenarios in between like them getting the ball with like 30 seconds left and so on so um, you know, unfortunately, like I said at the beginning, three incompletions happens about twelve percent of the time, and and that was the worst case scenario for Seattle. The best case scenario for, uh, sorry, worst case scenario for San Francisco. Best case scenario for Seattle. And even then, Seattle didn't even get. Seattle got basically a long field goal. Uh, you know, to go ahead and win that game. So, um, yeah, I mean, there. The people that come back and say, oh, they should have played for the tie, I think are overestimating the risk of what actually happened, which is that Seattle got the ball back with enough time to score and are underestimating, um, you know, San Francisco's ability to do like the, just a little bit better than the bare minimum, which is to get a first down or even just to drain 40 to 50 uh, cents, seconds off that clock. So um unfortunately, it didn't work out for San Francisco, but um and that the idea of taking a knee, and you know, obviously in hindsight, a tie would have been preferable. Um, but I don't think it's an egregious thing that San Francisco went ahead and went for the win.
1: WWBD? What would Belichick do?
0: Well, I I think Belichick would have would have gone for the win, but at the same time, if if, the, if this would have been an unprecedented move, and I think Belichick probably would have been one of the first to do it had he viewed it uh, favorably.
1: You think Doug Peterson would have thought about it for a second?
0: Yeah, the, the The interesting thing about Peterson is I think Peterson probably would have ran the ball at least once on the possession. He's more of a conservative play caller. Um, but I think it would have crossed his mind. Yeah, they have plenty of pretty um, sharp people that work for them that have probably gone through this scenario you know, even before the two of us have.
1: The one other X factor is that The kicker for the 49ers sort of looked, I don't want to say like a scared rabbit, but sort of looked like the moment was affecting him uh, with three minutes to go when he kicked a 47-yard field goal attempt wide right. So I wonder, what do you think the percentage chance would have been if he had another shot to take a 47-yard try at a field goal to win the game right at the end? Would that have, would you have taken his miss with three minutes to go into account?
0: I don't think so. I, you know, I would say, again, it's probably the, a little bit below league average, which I don't have in front of me, but it, it probably would have been something like, you know, 60 to 70% on that a kick like that. So, no, I mean, that was a, an interesting, like, uh, I think he just missed the kick, right? And, it, you know, it was, didn't even give it a right. shot, really. So, um, no, I don't think that, factors in and, and i think the reason be, is because you know if you're in a position to kick a game-winning field goal there again the worst case scenario is a tie which you would have already been conceding had you not you know what i mean like if you would have said okay we're just going to throttle back on this drive i don't think it's because of the field goal i don't think there was there weren't issues with protection wasn't going to get blocked in return for a touchdown it was more of the okay like it would have been more disappointing <laughs> you know had they gotten all the way down again uh and missed the kick uh I think I think that's probably like a, a you know, fifth concern for uh San Francisco. There is more of the fact that Garoppolo was just not moving the football very well and his receivers were uh putting the ball in harm's way as well.
1: Eric, do you believe that there's any coach at any level of football who would have gone for the tie? Uh
0: currently, um I don't think so. I, I think yeah, I don't I don't think so. I think um well, the, the interesting thing is the good, the very, very good coaches, the coaches on the cutting edge of the NFL right now have great quarterbacks, you know, so Belichick has Brady and as much as, and Belichick is never going to tell Brady with two minutes left, that we're not going to go for the the win here. Um, Peterson has Wentz, uh Harbaugh has Lamar Jackson, who, you know, is improving as a passer more of a runner, you know, is where he's elite right now, but I still think they would have gone for something. Uh, so, Um, And and some of the weaker coaches, I think, are, you know, saddled with weaker quarterbacks. And I don't think they would have thought, you know, to go for that. And in fact, if, yeah, it's an interesting question, but I would say no, just because of the the confluence of those things that, you know, most of the teams that are good enough to have a coach like that also have a quarterback that, that they trust. The Niners are interesting in that Shanahan's a great coach and Garoppolo's kind of, you know, still, we're still learning what Garoppolo is as a quarterback.
1: It's so interesting And as I say in uh, the lead to this podcast today, it is the classic case of every time you watch a sports event, but particularly a football game, there's an excellent chance you're going to see a something you never saw and think about something you never thought before. And I think, although I absolutely agree that I would have also gone for the win, and I would have tried to play aggressively to try to win the game. Uh, it's fascinating to think of what a big advantage they would have this morning. You know, at the end of 10 weeks of this season. To have tied that game rather than lost it. But, I, you know, we got to live in the reality. We got to live in the now. This is the classic hindsight thing. <laughs> but I just wanted to know what you thought. And I'm glad to hear that you think not just in terms of the raw numbers but you also think in terms of the humanity of it which is you can't settle for a tie in a game of this magnitude
0: well and and ultimately and i i always come back to this when i talk about football football is an entertainment product you know and first and foremost like the league you know the league has sort of gotten itself out of Uh, what was a sort of a a lull in TV ratings and all that kind of stuff. And it just, to me, it also sends a bad message from a, from an entertainment perspective, right? Like it is the last night's game was great. And the ending was what sealed it. Right. There's a, there's a, a little bit of an issue when, you know, Monday night football, you know, we've had some good games. We've had some bad games, but the best one of them all, ends with a team sort of sitting on the ball. Uh, I don't know if that sends the greatest message and I know winning is first and foremost, but from the broader NF of the shields perspective, you want entertainment as well. So I think we ended up with sort of, you know, if you're not, if you're not a San Francisco 49ers fan, we ended up with sort of the perfect outcome uh, last night. And that was because both teams tried to win. Um, Interestingly, uh, you know, everybody's talking about the Niners and their schedule, which is tough. And, you know, they play basically all the two other teams on their schedule are pretty good going forward. We actually have uh, Seattle with just slightly less of a difficult schedule, but still the third toughest schedule uh, in the NFL moving forward behind San Francisco's second. So, you know, there's also the issue of, yeah, San Francisco might be found out over the next six, seven weeks, but Seattle might as well. the and San Francisco still has a half-game lead, so they're still they're still the favorite to win the NFC West, even after this decision. But as you said, they could have been uh, overwhelming favorites.
1: Would you would PFF give the Niners the edge in the division as of right now?
0: Yes, uh, Seattle gained, a, uh, like I said, I believe about thirty percentage points of ground. But San Francisco had such a stranglehold over that position early on that it was. Um, you know it it was a tough you know it's tough to overcome both teams are overwhelming favorites to make the playoffs still um, but the Niners now are uh, I haven't done the the Sims but you know the estimation is about you know they're about 55 to 60 percent to to win the division still whereas before they were more in that 70 percent range uh, 75 percent range so uh, again like you know if, if seattle would have lost it would have gone back 50, you know 15 16 points percentage wise they won they went up 15 60 percentage points so that swing is humongous in an nfl game and probably what exactly what the nfl folks wanted when they put a game uh like that on primetime.
1: eric eager senior data scientist pff really appreciate you bringing some sense to the discussion
0: yeah thanks for having me peter
1: I wanted to draw your attention to a couple of other podcasts in the NBC Sports family. Uh, PFTPM Mike Florio this week has on Bell to talk about his move in what has been a fascinating season and not all good for the New York Jets. Chris Sims will do what the bleep happened <laughs> on his podcast, Chris Sims Unbuttoned, uh, with the Rams' offense going nowhere, with Jimmy Garoppolo's performance. And the Cowboys' end-of-game play-calling strategy, that was a weird one. So listen to those podcasts. And now my conversation with Mike Tannenbaum, NFL analyst for ESPN. Back on the podcast, really happy to be joined by Mike Tannenbaum, who has had really what I would call an incredible football life. You know, And, and I'm going to get him to talk a little bit about his resume before we get into this. But this is a great example that if you are somebody who really wants something, how do you pursue it? How do you go after it? And what is the path that you take to be able to do the things that so many people sitting on their couches at home really, really want to do? So, Mike, thank you very much for meeting me. We're meeting here. It's Monday night uh, of this week, and we're meeting before the Seattle-San Francisco game. Yes, go ahead, Mike. If I could uh, respectfully interrupt, I'm
2: very disappointed with that introduction in homage to the other guests on the show. I was hoping for, you are looking live at (laughs) Mike (laughs) Tannenbaum.
1: In the South Street Seaport. That's
2: right. The mean streets of New York City. In honor of the great Brent Musburger, who, you know, growing up, I bookended my football coverage with Peter King of Enfield, Connecticut <laughs> and Sports <laughs> Illustrated and CBS pregame show, 1230, only a half an hour show, you know, with Brett Smokeburger. And when he would come on the air, you were looking live. That was like the Somewhere, iconic. Yeah. yeah. you were like the I- iconic feeling of, wow, this is football. Can't, like that was what got my juices flowing.
1: I, I love that guy. I worked with him for two years at ABC doing the halftime show of Monday Night Football. And he was just a tremendous guy. You know what's crazy, Mike? He's 80 years old, and you listen to him doing the radio broadcast of the Oakland Raiders, and he is as excited as an eight-year-old out on the re- uh, out at out at recess on the playground. He is just. We played a clip of Brent. Uh, which you'll hear on this podcast and he's screaming about a josh jacobs touchdown and and just i love somebody who just really loves his job it's the coolest thing peter
2: isn't that what it's all about though i always say this choose a job you love you'll never work a day in your life the best plumber in our country loves being a plumber the best teacher loves teaching and when you're around i've been fortunate to be around some great coaches in my career and people They love what they do. And I've been fortunate, and I know you love what you do, and Brent Musburger is another example of that.
1: All right, so Mike, please, I want you to tell the aspiring junior at Ohio University who says, man, I really want to do X. I want you to tell that college student right now, if you really want to do X, what it is that you exactly do. Maybe you can tell it through your eyes of how you got to where you got to? Yeah, well,
2: the first thing I would do is I would take those Ohio University Bobcats and say they need to transfer to UMass. So that's <laughs> the first thing I would. T- You're
1: crazy. <laughs> no,
2: although I would, I do nickname the UMass sports management program the Dream Academy because of the countless GMs that have come through there. But I digress.
1: Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Who's who's been through there? Tell me. I, mean, we're, we're,
2: I you could go to uh, Colby Altman, Chris Greer. You could go to Ben Charrington. Wow. Yeah.
1: All right you got a few of those. All right, so let's hear your story.
2: So I think it always comes back to creating value and serving others. And for me, I was very fortunate that uh, while I was in New Orleans going to Tulane Law School, the CBA came into effect. And literally overnight, the first 75 years of football, players what were What year was this? 1993, 1994, and then when I graduated ninety-five. 95. So, but
1: did you have this burning desire? That yes. You wanted to work in pro sports or the NFL?
2: No, in pro sports. My first job was actually working for the Pittsfield Mets in 1991, putting cheese on the nachos, raking the infield, and then I worked overnight from 11 at night to 7 in the morning sorting mail in the Pittsfield, Massachusetts post office because my parents paid for college, and they said, if you have this crazy dream of wanting to work in sports, you're on your own. And I didn't know well enough to say, okay, here we go. And uh, based on that experience, I went to law school, and I was unbelievably lucky. There was a strike in 82, 87, and then in 93 there was this comprehensive settlement where the owners got the form of cost certainty in, in terms of the salary cap. Players got free agency. And at the time, the general manager of the Saints was a guy named Bill Q. He replaced the Great. recently deceased Jim Finks. The assistant GM was a gentleman named Chet Franklin. And they, after about four or five times of them saying no, they said, okay, you could come in. You're going to help us learn the salary cap, you're going to drive people to the airport. And literally overnight, the people that had work in front of offices changed from former coaches to people with JDs and MBAs. So for a year and a half, I worked for free. And I put my thoughts together on, hey, how would you build a team in a salary cap year? So I graduated in 95, and I put a book together, and I sent it out to every GM and every head coach in, in the league. And basically, I got 58 rejection letters. And Mike Lombardi and Bill Belichick of the Browns said, come on in. And they hired me, and I spent the 95 season working for the Cleveland Browns and, again, driving people to the airport and just being, you know, happy to be part of the program but also researching contracts. And one of the things I learned from Coach Belichick there was he actually asked me my opinion, which was like I was just happy to be there, Peter. Like, you know, there was countless other great people there, you know, Thomas Dimitrov and George Kokinas and Eric Mangini and Scott Pioli, on and on and on. And I remember working on Tim Jacobs' contract. They wanted to do an extension on Tim Jacobs. I'm like, they really care what I think? I I was blown away. And it was an incredible experience, incredible people to be around. But what I learned was you have to create value. And if you're a young student at Ohio University, listen to this. How do you create value and separate yourself from others? And how do you meet or exceed your boss's expectations? And that, to me, was why I was incredibly lucky. So, uh, as you know, the Browns became the Ravens. Um, I was let go with a bunch of other people. I went back to the Saints, spent the 96 season with the Saints. And my big break came in 1997 when Coach Parcells and Coach Belichick left the Patriots after the 96 Super Bowl, and they were running the Jets. And at the time, there was some uncertainty initially if Coach Parcells would be able to do that. And Coach Belichick, Scott Pioli, Eric Mangini, guys that I knew at Cleveland recommended me to Coach Parcells. And uh, very fortunate that he gave me the opportunity to come in and I was lucky because he was the head coach and GM of the Jets, and he wanted to prove to the world that he could run the whole thing. And I was given way more responsibility than I deserved, and got to sit in on countless meetings that I probably should have been part of initially. But those four years were in incre- any
1: ways in in any way did you feel a little bit like Jonah Hill in Moneyball?
2: Hundred percent. I felt like a lot of things. Like for the first year, I really had no responsibility except to be the mouthpiece of Coach Barcells to the agents, and all I could do was literally repeat what he wanted to be said, and we would meet 5.30 in the morning. Coach Barcells was a morning guy, but Coach Barcells has also seen a couple of mob movies, and he literally would say, Mr. T, nobody is allowed to leave until all family business has been settled. (laughs) And I remember countless times where I would have a script in the morning, a script in the evening, and I'll never forget, we were signing a player, he just got cut, by the New England Patriots. And he's like, Mr. T, I want you to sign him for $300,000. I want him driving down 95. He's going to be the personal protector on the punt team, the special teams meetings at 9 AM. I want you to get his physical done. I want him to get fitted for equipment. And don't wake me up. I'm going to bed goodbye. I called up the agent, gave him the whole spiel. He said, Mike, that all sounds great, except that Jimmy Johnson's blowing up his phone right now. He's not taking no for an answer. And Jimmy Johnson's the head coach of the Miami Dolphins. So I had this incredible juxtaposition, which is I either would go over the allotted three hundred thousand dollars to sign the player, or I was gonna disappoint Coach Parcells. So in one of those few moments where I felt like I had decision making authority, I'm like, I think we could find two hundred thousand dollars someplace else, but my gosh, I can't not have this player in this meeting at nine AM the next morning. So we got the deal done. The player Who was he? It was Corwin Brown.
1: Corwin Brown he was a player and later became a coach. Yep. Wow.
2: Yep. Okay. And so Corwin. So what
1: happened? He was there the next morning?
2: Absolutely. I was going to go drive up to, to Providence to get him. He was the last cut of uh, Pete Carroll and a uh, great special teams player. So that was like one of the first moments I actually had like to. Part- and so
1: what happened when Parcells found out that you spent more money than he had allotted?
2: I said coach like I couldn't wake you up that was not an option and not signing a player was an option so I felt like the worst of the th- the, the least bad of the three bad decisions was <laughs> that it was to overspend
1: was spending some of the money that wasn't mine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what did he say?
2: He's like kind of nodded. So I I took by not getting yelled at was like sort of like this like tacit sort of approval.
1: Were you in the front office there? when they traded Hugh Douglas to the Eagles?
2: I was. I was St. Patrick's Day, 1998.
1: Okay. Parcells, I remember, and look, this is not barely interesting, but for people who don't know Hugh Douglas, Hugh Douglas was an interesting pass rusher. There were differing opinions on him throughout the league, but there was a time when Hugh Douglas was on the New York Jets, and Joe Banner, who was the either the president or the GM of the Eagles, I forget, wanted Joe Douglas, and there was a lot of back and forth. And Parcells got very pissed off at one point. But what was? What do you remember about that one?
2: So we were looking to recover draft choices, and because of uh, the settlement between the Patriots and the Jets for Coach Parcells, and in addition, Curtis Martin coming to the Jets for a first and third round pick, there was a number of picks that we were trying to recover. And we were able to get a second and fifth round pick. And while Hugh Douglas was a good pass rusher, he wasn't a great fit for what Coach Parcells and Coach Belichick wanted to play on defense. So we felt like because the scheme fit wasn't ideal and to recover a couple draft choices, it was a good trade to make. But that trade was finalized on St. Patrick's Day. And I remember like it was yesterday.
1: Wow. Mike Tannenbaum, uh, the longtime NFL executive, now working for ESPN. All right, so Mike... um, Let's fast forward to now. I was on my way over here tonight reading Twitter, and I saw that you really like Justin Herbert, the quarterback at at Oregon. And we right now are in a period in football history where, you know, a year and a half ago, Lamar Jackson was picked 32 overall, and a classic quarterback – like Josh Rosen, was picked 10th. Now, there isn't a soul on planet Earth right now who would pick Josh Rosen over Lamar Jackson. And there's a chance that Lamar Jackson, a chance, who knows, could be the MVP of the NFL this year. So having said all that, there are three quarterbacks this year, and there's four or five other ones that are really good, the Washington kid, for instance. But there's three who people think might go in the top five or seven or ten. It's Justin Herbert at Oregon, Tua Tagovailoa at and I know I'm mispronouncing his name, at Alabama, and obviously Joe Burrow uh, at LSU. On Saturday, you were at the Alabama-LSU game watching, scouting, taking everything in. You saw two of the three quarterbacks, and yet today you say, I would take Justin Herbert over all of them. Give me your reasoning why.
2: Well, through today, 51 quarterbacks have started an NFL game, which is really remarkable, Peter. In this year? This year, 51. And if you think about that, we're really – A little over the halfway mark. Imagine if you and I were sitting here around Christmas time, how many quarterbacks will have started. And that includes Jeff Driscoll, who's just started, Brian Hoyer, who just started, Ryan Finley, who had just started. So 51 is an extremely high number. So the context of my answer is from running teams, knowing the limited resources you have to find. And it hurt us in Miami, and I was – Absolutely partially responsible for the decision not to have better depth at that quarterback position because when Ryan Tannehill has played, and, you know, Adam Gase is being called a lot of things right now, but when Adam Gase was the head coach of the Dolphins and Ryan Tannehill was healthy, we were going to the playoffs. And what Ryan Tannehill is doing now is a continuation of him playing. He's not an elite quarterback, but he's a very good quarterback, and he's showing that. Now, point being is we didn't do a good enough job at depth at quarterback. And when you look at those three players, I think Joe Burrow is going to be a good player. I think two is going to be a good player. I've seen all three up close, but at the end of the day, there's a reason, and this is Coach Parcells one-on-one, but are they built to last? And when you look at Justin Herbert, he looks a lot like Ben Roethlisberger, and I believe over time, given all the injuries that we're seeing at the pro level, 51 quarterbacks have already started, Justin Herbert has the best chance of playing the longest at a high level and being the most durable, which I think is a critical factor. If you... Eric DaCosta may not be able to answer this question candidly on the record. but I The pro- Baltimore GM. The Baltimore GM. I am 100% sure when he goes to bed every night, the one second and third last thought he has is the health of Lamar Jackson, the health of Lamar Jackson, and the health of Lamar Jackson, because the ball is in his hands so much. What happens yeah. when he's going to take a lot more hits than other quarterbacks, and that is going to be a concern because you're trying to build systems that are sustainable for long periods of time, and that's always going to be the big question is when the quarterback makes that, many, makes that many plays with the ball in his hands, what happens when he gets hit over and over again?
1: Okay, so let me give you the counter to that. If you were to look right now today, this moment, at let's say the four most valuable quarterbacks in the NFL right now today. I would say number one is Russell Wilson. Number two is probably Lamar Jackson. Number three, Deshaun Watson. And probably number four uh, would be Patrick Mahomes. Now, Mahomes, if he didn't miss any time, would probably be number one. And this doesn't mean value overall over the next 10 years. I'm just talking about the value of this year. And what is the one thing that all four of them have – it's the ability to move around and get out of trouble in the pocket. None of them are statues. You're talking about, with Justin Herbert, a guy who, even though he's big and he's Roethlisberger, he's going to get hit because he doesn't move around that much.
2: Yeah, actually, I think he's a better athlete maybe than he's getting credit for. And I in particular, when you talk about someone like Russell Wilson, one of the reasons Russell Wilson has had sustainability is he has rare lower body flexibility. And when you read about him, and I've talked to people around him, he spends hours every day working on his lower body flexibility. So so does Aaron Rodgers. There, there's a reason, if you go back to, and watch the history of our sport, Tony Dorsett, Curtis Martin, they have a, the ability to make people miss. And that adds to their longevity. My point is on Lamar Jackson. He is a great athlete arguably the greatest athlete on our right, sport.
1: Right, but he he's a different-looking guy. That, I mean, he's a skinny guy, basically. He's yeah. a He's a smaller guy, and I get that.
2: And, and at some point over time, he and his style of play is going to lend to getting hit. And again, Peter, I've been on the short end of bad quarterback depth charts, and you go from contending to being unemployed. That's just yeah. the reality of the jobs. And. That's why sustainability and depth at quarterback is so important. Think about that. 51 different quarterbacks have started this year. Do you know how many lives that impacts overall? And some teams have done a great job. You know, you, you look at, for example, Carolina. They're in the pennant race because Kyle Allen has played really well. Indianapolis and the great job that Chris Ballard's has done with Jacoby Brissett, imagine if they didn't have him. And that's why, to me, you know, And Kirk Cousins is probably the best example of it. They drafted RG3. He got hurt in the same draft. They drafted Kirk Cousins, and he's the guy that propelled them. So, to me, if you're talking about taking somebody like, again, Tua, who's been hurt in college, you better have a good plan B because I think it's – a Peter, I just think if we were sitting down and is it a reasonable bet that Tua is going to play 10 years without getting hurt, I just think that's – it's more likely than not. At some point, he's going to have durability concerns.
1: I – look – Mike, you, I would assume you've watched a lot of these quarterbacks because you don't know if your phone is going to ring in, whenever and say, hey, you have any interest in running an NFL team. So you have to stay current on this. I watch very, very little college football. I watched every snap of LSU Alabama, and I realized that Tua Tagovailoa was at playing at 81 or 78%. He wasn't himself, and I get it. On the other hand, Tua has been hurt quite often, you know, or, or I shouldn't say quite often, but he's hurt, been hurt a couple of times, and he's been out, so he's not been a, a durable guy. Through, maybe through no fault of his own, but whatever. He hasn't been a durable guy. But I watched this Joe Burrow complete his first 13% or first 13 passes, in one of the toughest places to play a sports event in the United States, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, against Nick Saban. And I just said to myself, I look, I know I would have to watch a lot of tape, but how in the world do you not pick in this guy if you need a quarterback in the NFL?
2: So that's thought number one. The other one is, I'm standing on the sidelines on Saturday and I'm watching this guy warm up. I'm like, Dwayne Haskins supposed to be Superman. How in the world is Joe <laughs> is Joe Burrow not playing at Ohio State? Okay,
1: so let's let's remember, Joe Burrow comes out of Athens, Ohio, and he goes to Ohio State. He's Mister Football in the state of Ohio. He goes to Ohio State and gets beaten out for the starting job by Dwayne Haskins and by um, Cardale Jones. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Cardale Jones before for the year before that, but he can't win the starting job. So he says, okay. I'm going to graduate transfer. I'm going to do this portal thing. and and But he's got two years of eligibility left, not one. And he decides to go to LSU, and everybody said, what is wrong with you going to LSU? What are you doing? And you know what is interesting, Mike? This is something that because so Saturday night and Sunday morning, I'm just totally fascinated with this guy. I don't know him. I know nothing about him. And I start reading everything about him. And I realize that as basically a kind of a a Mason Dixon line Yankee, you know, from Southeast Ohio. And look, I went to Ohio University. That's Athens, Ohio. His dad at the time, you know, in the last couple of years was the defensive coordinator under Frank Solich at Ohio University. So he was just living in Athens. This is not in any way a football hotbed. This is a bad area for high school football. But anyway, he's really good. He ends up going to Ohio State and all that. But my point is, I'm thinking to myself, imagine somebody from there going to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He's not a Southern boy. They have no idea who he is. He's a backup who couldn't win the job at Ohio State. And he has got to be Mr. Subservient throughout almost all of the 2018 offseason season leading into that season. And then to watch him the other day get carried off the field in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, by his offensive lineman, I said, my gosh, imagine what has happened to this guy. But I don't even have a question, but give me your thought on uh, yeah, him and yeah. about the quarterbacks. Yeah,
2: I totally agree. And, and we, we stayed through the end of the game, and to watch the LSU fans and the players celebrate – It was more than a win, and uh, I was with Ryan Clark earlier today. He made an interesting point. He's like, you know what, Mike? We may win the national championship this year, we meeting LSU. He's like, this was a bigger win. He's like, to beat Alabama, in Alabama, two undefeated teams with so much on the line, what that does for their program and the entire state, and you can sense it. And I think it does say a lot about Joe Burrow, like to inspire others, especially in pro football, with such a disparate background. And that's what I love about working in an NFL facility the commonality of wearing the same Jersey with people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, geographic backgrounds. There's something special about Joe Burrow that he could lead as quote unquote, being an outsider from the North coming down and indoctrinating himself into the state of Louisiana so quickly. Like he has very special attributes. It was really clear how beloved he was by his teammates.
1: So you most recently worked for the Miami dolphins, um, In the uh, Steve Ross ownership regime, you obviously are very close to Chris Greer or have been close to Chris Greer and that whole organization. They had three people at the game the other night, including obviously Chris Greer. So absolute gut feeling, not holding you to this at all. Who do you think they like?
2: You know, I really don't know. But what I do know is that, you know, they have done a good job of positioning themselves for maximum flexibility. But, Peter, it may not matter. That may be a moot point because, you know, if we were sitting here a month ago, they have the first pick in the draft. Brian Flores has won back-to-back games. What happens if they have the seventh pick? Are we going to be talking about Jacob Eason, right? Think about all the other quarterback variables that will happen between. But, you
1: know, I will say this. I will say this. I think you and I probably would both agree right now. That the Cincinnati Bengals are going to have the first pick in the draft. Agreed. Okay, so.
2: I can give you six other teams that could be taking quarterbacks in the top.
1: Of course. And also teams that could trade into that area to get a guy. But but here's the point I was going to make. So in 1984, the first time I ever covered the NFL, I covered as a beat the Cincinnati Bengals. And even though Paul Brown was the owner of the team, His son, Mike Brown, ran the team. Here we are, 35 years later, 2020 draft day. It'll be 36 years later that Mike Brown will still run the Cincinnati Bengals. And the one thing that I got used to in that year covering the Bengals, and then I left, and over the years I've kept in touch with people there, and the one thing I've gotten used to is, the Bengals are perhaps the most iconoclastic organization in sports. They don't care if you, for instance, let's just say they have the first pick in the draft in April of 2020. Let's just say they do. And let's say they want whoever they want. You know, let's say they want uh, Justin Herbert. Let's say they do and let's say three other teams want him and are willing to offer three ones for that pick, Mike Brown will say, we're not trading it. They could offer 17 ones. We don't care. And that, to me, is the most dangerous thing about the Bengals having the first pick and falling in love with somebody. I don't even say fall in love with it, but whoever it is, and wanting that guy. It doesn't matter what you would offer. They're not giving up. And I'll say one other thing, Mike. It's one thing if the Rams and Kevin Demoff have the first pick in the draft, okay? They're going to say, okay, what will you offer me? It's another thing to say, okay, the Ravens and Eric DaCosta, they got the first pick in the draft, and obviously they won't. But, okay, Eric DaCosta said, what are you going to offer me? There are some teams, very few, the Bengals are one of them, who will say, I don't care what you offer us. We're taking this guy.
2: Yeah, no, it's interesting. Although they did trade up for Bo Schoel. Aaron, well, Sch- oh, Aaron Schoel's younger.
1: I'm telling you, they have made trades. That doesn't mean that. But I'm just saying that if they decide this is the guy they want, you could offer him nine ones, and they're, not, they're just not going to move.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's totally fair, and that's going to be a huge dynamic. And then if you just play out, let's say presumably Washington having the second pick in the draft, assuming they like – Join Haskins. Imagine how quickly they could rebuild their team if some team is going to offer them an incredible haul. So we could be talking about the Washington Redskins really controlling next year's draft if this this order
1: plays out. And the other thing is, what happens? I would bet there are going to be five teams that are totally smitten with Chase Young, the Ohio State pass rusher. Whatever this little controversy is about him, nobody cares. I'm I'm saying nobody in the NFL cares. Correct. But I look at this and I say, there's three teams that stink that will want Chase Young desperately. No one more so than Dave Gettleman of the New York Giants, and and crazily, you know Joe Douglas of the New York Jets very well could want Chase Young desperately. This could be a duel for Chase Young between uh and and if and if you're and if you're right, let's say the Bengals pick one and Washington picks two. this could be one of the most interesting markets for a draft there ever has been because everybody knows the Bengals if they decide on their guy aren't going to trade, but then Washington could be sitting there and they could get the ultimate gold mine you know for that pick
2: absolutely, especially if they feel good about Haskins and they'll know a lot more about Dwayne Haskins at the end of the year than they know today right. You know, the wow. other way this plays out too. If you go back a year ago, you know if Arizona had taken Lamar Jackson instead of Josh Rosen, they could be sitting there with Lamar Jackson, Chandler Jones, and Nick Bosa, because they would have taken Nick Bosa. In wow! St- right, and yeah. so now you fast forward the story. If Washington, but they
1: s- might not have stunk so bad to get that Nick Bosa pick this year.
2: Although Patrick Mahomes didn't play in year one, so we don't yeah. know. Right? Yeah, right. But yeah. what's interesting? My point is this. The evaluation of Dwayne Haskins may impact the 2020 draft as much as the evaluations of Tua, Burrow, and Justin Herbert because if they're convinced that they can win with Haskins, it changes the whole landscape of the top five.
1: Mike, you you, uh, have been a general manager and club executive in places with tremendous impatience. Uh, The Jets, number one. And you had the Jets, first of all and you had great success relatively speaking to almost all eras in Jets history because you get to the AFC championship game twice but and then obviously in, in Miami but I guess the question I wanted to ask in closing is these teams right now that get to midseason and are 2 and 7 and 0 oh and 9 and all this and We're in New York right now. If you listen to WFAN today, you hear breathless screamers saying that Dave Gettleman has to go. Pat Shermer has to go. Adam Gase has to go. We don't even know who Joe Douglas is, but (laughs) he better win in the next 10 minutes or he has to go too. How do you deal with that?
2: Yeah. So a couple of thoughts. First of all, it really comes down to you have to win for today and develop for tomorrow. So, one of the things that is hardly ever written about or talked about is Coach Belichick, the transformation. He, he won a Super Bowl in year two in New England. And the 1996 Jets won one game under Rich Cotite. In 1997, Bill Belichick, Bill Parcells, a lot of us came in. We won nine games. In 98, we were in the championship game. I think the trick is you have to win for today and develop for tomorrow because in pro sports now, if you don't win enough for today, you're not developing tomorrow. Somebody else is. And we've seen that time and time again. And you hear things about Freddie Kitchens maybe being on the hot seat. So you have to win enough today so you can develop for tomorrow. And to go back to what we talked about, you have to have – Alex Smith developing Patrick Mahomes. Now, look, I think Patrick Mahomes would probably be 85% of what he would have been if he went to the Chicago Bears. But think about he went to the best situation possible. He's getting coached by Andy Reid. He sat for a year, and he learned under Alex Smith. Like, you couldn't ask for a better situation. So my point is, if I'm Joe Douglas or Dave Gettleman, I could see Dave Gettleman's vision in terms of, well, if Eli Manning can win enough games, I don't have to play Daniel Jones right away. Because if you don't, you have to win enough. The way our sport is covered, there is not a three-year plan. The closest example of that is what we're going to see tonight, where Jed York said, Kyle Shanahan, here's a six-year deal. Goodbye. I'm leaving. And they hit a lot of bumps in the road. They missed on a lot of picks. And if you remember. Ruben Foster. Amongst many Huge, others. yeah. Yeah.
1: Maybe Solomon Thomas, too.
2: No question. And maybe the most interesting one was everyone talked about Kirk Cousins and Kyle Shanahan are a package deal. And – Kirk Cousins is coming with Kyle Shanahan, and then Kirk Cousins gets franchised. And I know for a fact that Jim, uh, that Jimmy Garoppolo was not scenario A for the San Francisco 49ers, but the point was that was one of the few times that we've seen an owner show great mental toughness and ride out the waves of John Lynch and Kyle yeah. Shanahan being patient. And now they're bearing the fruits of that labor. The question is, will Jimmy Haslam hang in there? with Freddie kitchens and i i think i would challenge the owner and say hey look fall back on the process why why did the jets hire adam gase why did cleveland hire Freddie kitchens and those are the ways those are the things you have to do pat Shermer with john mara in terms of when you hit the bump of the road why'd you hire these guys and hang in there with them and, and grow together but the as one point
1: i would make in this and I'll, I'll argue with you on this a little bit is that I believe to this day that the New York Jets would have hired Matt Rule if he simply said, I will accept an offensive coordinator who you guys like, who I don't really know, either Todd Munkin or, ironically, Adam Gase. And uh, he said, well, geez, I'd really like to meet these guys. I can't, you know, first of all, he knows Chris Johnson and Mike McKagan for 10 minutes. And and look, I don't know for sure that they would have hired him, but there's a lot of weird stories, I think, about one of the reasons I think the Jets, until they hired Joe Douglas, because I believe Joe Douglas is going to be really, really good for a long time. He just has to put on earmuffs and not read the paper or listen to the radio.
2: It's not even about earmuffs. It's about establishing a program and a culture and making sure that he handles the Jamal Adams one-on-one. It doesn't yeah. matter what we think about that right. situation, but he has to have dinner with him. And and the hard part about that transition, and I lived it, and I've said this on the record, Peter, I'm not proud of this. It took me 18 months to learn the job. I was the assistant GM of the New York Jets for five years, and thank God we went to the playoffs in year one when I was the GM. But I would tell you personally, I really struggled. I really struggled to understand what the job was because I was a very task-oriented guy, I was 36 years old. I'm in the biggest market in the world, running an NFL team, feeling completely overwhelmed and feeling like I never got anything done. And then I realized, but having dinner with Jamal Adams could be the most important thing of the 20 things that Joe Douglas has to do. And he doesn't understand that yet because Joe Douglas got the job by being a great evaluator and grinding and going to LSU and Alabama and then staying there for two more days and getting those 24 players ranked correctly. But now... If Jamal Adams is happy, like he's having a great day in the office. But you have to have the wisdom yeah. and the experience to learn. That's his new job description.
1: Mike, I want we'll to land with this. I, I, I could not agree with you more. They hired Joe Douglas because he found Joe Flacco. And we can be as critical as we want, but Joe Flacco, when he worked for the Ravens, Joe Flacco won the Baltimore Ravens a Super Bowl. So... He ought to get a pass into eternity from every Ravens fan because who knows when they'll win another Super Bowl. And I'm saying they won't. They might win nine more. I don't know. But my point is you get the job because you're a great evaluator. And once you get there, you realize that all of a sudden I have a crisis. The most important thing that I can do as a football executive today, this week, this month, is to put out the Jamal Adams fire, you know. And Joe Douglas, I'm sure, I'm sure he knew that it was going to be a, a big job with a lot of different tasks. But I'm sure he thought, well, the most important thing for me is going to be to pick players. Well, ultimately, probably that's true. The most important thing for him right now this month is to make sure that Jamal Adams doesn't get so pissed off that no matter what you say or do, he'll never want to play for you again.
2: Yeah, and, and if that's, I agree, if that's rule number one, 1A is Adam Gase doing the same thing. And Adam right. Gase got the job because he's a great play caller and he's great with the quarterbacks, but he has to scale leadership and he has to make sure that the coaches are being held accountable and he has to do things that are an evolved skill set from what he was great at that got him the job. And that's why you see coaches manifest themselves. There's so many interesting stories like Andy Reid. Andy Reid was a non-playing quarterback coach and was one of the greatest hires of the last 20 years. And that's what's so interesting about our sport. That's why yeah, you see so many misses because the jobs that – the responsibilities that these new jobs come with are not the ones that they were people were great at to get the jobs.
1: You know, in 1990, whatever year Steve Mariucci got the job with San Francisco as the head coach, maybe – 96 or 97, I forget. Mike Holmgren names Andy Reid, the quarterback coach. And so he was the quarterback coach maybe in 97 and 98, Favre's last two MVP years, but at least in 98. And recently when I got together with uh, 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 Favre, Reid, and Patrick Mahomes, during the course of that taping, we did about 45 minutes watching tape. And at one point, not because it was an important thing, but just, Favre just said it. Favre said that Andy Reid was the best coach he had had. And I had always thought that Mike Holmgren was the best coach he had had. But he loves Andy Reid. So, honestly, Mike, you have no idea when you hire, let's say, and I'm going to say Freddie Kitchens because he comes in as a running backs coach in Cleveland, or or any of these guys who you hire – Who is going to be great at their job? Because sometimes you can't predict the circumstances that are going to befall any coach.
2: Yeah, that's totally fair. And that's where, you know, you look at Coach Belichick. He came through the ranks as a defensive guy. But really, like, his imprint on the New England Patriots obviously is is everywhere. But he earned the right to get the job as really being this defensive guru. But what he's been able to do in his career is identify, train, and 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 bring in countless people to let them excel and his imprint is obviously all through the organization, but that's not how he got the job originally. And and that's the part that I think a lot of owners miss is that they're they're hey, let's hire a coach and fix this problem. No, you gotta hire a CEO who yeah. could scale leadership.
1: Parcells was Parcells told me last winter When all of these guys were getting hired and look, you have no idea which ones are going to like Zach Taylor gets hired and Matt LaFleur gets hired and a bunch of other guys get hired because they were either part of a great system or they called plays or, or whatever. And Parcells said, nobody has any idea in the NFL right now what makes a good head coach. And it's great to be able to call plays, but. Have these guys ever had to call in a guy who's about to be suspended for four weeks and, and have to spend five hours with him and talk about, you know, what you have to do during the course of this time and we need you back in a month and all that stuff? He goes, that is what being a head coach is. It's not about thinking of the brilliant play that you can call down the road. That's why, like, of all these guys out there, and I'm going to write something in my column in a couple of weeks, I keep thinking a guy like, let's say, Dan Campbell, you know, who was an interim coach with the Dolphins, who's now on the Saints coaching staff. Dan Campbell is a guy who I think he is one tough SOB who can stand in front of a room. And, again, no lack of respect to any of these guys who get hired right now, but it's a bigger job than that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the main reasons Steve Ross, that's why we hired Dan in the 2015 season and um, because of his leadership and uh, totally agree. That's what's the big challenge of these jobs is, you know, again, it's a suspension. It's telling a player we can't pay you what you want and still having them feel like you care deeply about them and you want to stand shoulder to shoulder with them and accomplish all their goals and the team goals together. Those are the critical conversations. That's what the job's all about. And, you know, the public doesn't see 90% of those. I mean, they see a little glimpse in the hard knocks of the world, but, what Coach Parcells is talking about, that's what's fun, invigorating, and candidly, that's the -the on-the-job training until you sit in that seat because it was interesting when Jason Garrett, who's the only current interim head coach who's now a permanent head coach, when he got the job, uh, Jimmy Johnson said to Jason, remember just one thing, every interaction you have in that Dallas Cowboy building today will be that person's most important interaction. You can't look down. You can't look away. You can't have a bad day because they're going to go home and tell their family – I think my boss doesn't like me. I could be in trouble. So when you go from being the offensive coordinator, the head coach, when you have a bad moment, it has to be done in private.
1: Mike Tannenbaum, this was supposed to be 17 minutes. I think it was about 47. But thank you very much. This is a lot of fun.
2: Appreciate it. Thanks, Peter.
1: My thanks to Mike Tannenbaum and to Eric Eager. Uh, very interesting week. Man, a lot of subjects on the pod this week. And also, uh, make sure that you uh, fire up my podcast on Monday morning because, as you probably know, I'm doing a new podcast this season in which I preview my Football Morning in America column. And I do some other fun things uh, in, in reading part of the column and talking to other p- other players, coaches around the league this week. Snippets of interviews with uh, Bruce Arians after the Bucks' big win on Sunday. And Jarvis Landry after Cleveland's victory over Buffalo on Sunday. So I'm doing a lot of experimentation with that podcast. Uh, I hope you uh, uh, listen to it occasionally. And please tell me what you think at Peter underscore King on Twitter. And you can email me at Peter King, F M I A, at Gmail. Hey! Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next Monday on the FMIA Mini Pod.